So hear now the word of the Lord, Luke 21, verses 34 through 38. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump into that text, let's pray. Father, we open your word uh, each week because we believe that to every person in this room, you want, you want to speak to whatever it is that we're, we're thinking about, whatever it is we bring into this room this morning, whatever it is we're watching online. God, what, what's in our hearts right now, you're involved in that. You want to be, be present in that. So there's no way that, that as a church we can speak to all of those things individually, but we trust by opening your word, your spirit, We'll speak to each of us where we are this morning. We pray all that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I recently read an article titled, The End of the World Business is Booming, and it's exactly what it sounds like. There are currently 3.7 million preppers in the United States. These are people who are actively preparing for Armageddon, for the electrical grid to break down, for the world to fall apart, basically for the walking dead to happen, maybe without the zombies. And uh, basically that has become a booming business. The average prepper spends around $1,400 per year preparing for the end of the world, about $350 on food, and about $1,000 per year on gear. Basically these are the people that when Costco ran out of toilet paper last March, they were not worried. In fact, life was just beginning for them. It's like, finally, what I've been waiting for is about to happen. And here, in, in, in a very different way, but similar, Jesus is, is speaking about what his disciples are to be like when the end comes. How we're to prepare for the end, which doesn't involve buying dehydrated meat, but involves very different things. Uh, and so what we're going to do this morning is, is meditate as Jesus speaks to his disciples about how they are to live ready for the end, what that means for us. And he's going to go through a number of warnings before he actually gets to like proactively what we are supposed to do. So we're going to walk through the warnings first and then get to the, the pro commands about how we are to actively live as Christians ready for his return. So the first warning he gives is, do not let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. Now, before we get into the, the warnings, we, the context is important. So all of Luke 20 and 21 is Jesus teaching in the temple. So all of the, of the, Luke, of the Gospel of Luke, so we, we began the Gospel of Luke back in January, and all of the Gospel of Luke is, is all about getting to Jerusalem. And now Jesus has gotten to Jerusalem, and now he's at the center of Jerusalem, which is the temple. And for two chapters, he's teaching in the temple. And Luke 20, what Joseph preached on last week, is all about the, the clash of authority between Jesus and the temple. And the question of Luke 20 is who has the authority? Who's the authoritative voice, Jesus or the temple and its leadership? And now in Luke 21, Jesus sort of goes, he goes all in on his authority 
and begins to make claims about that authority and make claims about how we are to live in light of the fact that he is going to one day return to judge the whole world. And Jesus doubling down on his authority really starts in, in verse 6 in Luke 21. Which remember, he's, he's in the temple as he says this. And this is what he says in Luke 21 verse 6. As for these things that you see, in other words, as for this temple around you, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So basically, Jesus makes a pretty stunning prophecy, which is that this entire temple is going to be torn apart stone by stone. And it's, re it's really hard to overstate how like, stunning and aggressive this prophecy is, because the temple was, it was the center of the entire city of Jerusalem. It was the place where all religious life happened. It was the place where most political life Happened. It's where you gathered with family and friends to pray and worship. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. Now, the Jewish people believed there was one God. And that one God made his physical presence home in this temple. And Jesus is saying his home is about to get torn apart stone by stone. So it's hard to overestimate how intense of a prophecy this is and how the people would have heard it. Which was not just that the temple would be destroyed, but that means there was going to be a massive war for the temple to be overthrown, Jerusalem itself would have to be overthrown. Jesus was, was predicting massive war, disruption, and violence, and destruction of the very place of God's presence in the world. There's no way the disciples wouldn't have heard that and just been utterly, completely stunned. And Luke 21 is, is Jesus dealing with the fallout of that prophecy. What does that mean? And the disciples basically have two questions for Jesus when he says this. Question one is, uh, when is this going to happen? And Jesus makes clear this destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen in your lifetime. It's not far away. And then secondly, uh, the, the second question is, what are the signs that we should be looking out for to be ready, to be prepared for this? And Jesus, in answering those two questions to the disciples, does a couple of things. And the first thing he does is he wants to make clear to them that the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is not the end of the world. That's not coming yet. And that's what he says in verse 9 of Luke 21, where he says, uh, and when you hear of wars and tumults, in other words, when you, when you hear and you see the, the destruction of Jerusalem coming, uh, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So Jesus is, is separating two events. He's separating the destruction of Jerusalem from the end of the world. And that's important because... The assumption the disciples would have had, which is, not, is, I think, a pretty normal assumption to have, is that when they see the symbol being destroyed, the world must be ending very, very soon. And I think that's something that you and I can relate to, uh, because while we certainly have not been through what uh, the disciples would go through when Jerusalem was overthrown, 2020 has been, been a year where many people have, like, half-joking and I think, like, 90% seriously, like, looked at me and said, like, it feels like the world's ending right now. Right, like pandemic, uh, the political violence that's been uh, on the left and the right over the course of the last year, just the strife, the like, just the craziness of our time. It's like, man, is this is, is God winding this thing down? Is this the final season, and we're about to hit the finale pretty soon? Like, it just feels that way. So imagine you live in Jerusalem, first century, and your entire city gets thrown, gets 
gets torn apart because this happened about 40 years after Jesus predicted this. This happened. Rome invaded Jerusalem. They tore the city apart. They took the temple apart stone by stone. All of these things happened. And your assumption would be as you're watching your city being destroyed and the temple of God being taken apart stone by stone, you would have assumed, oh, the end is happening very, very shortly. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, and that's, that's important because uh, when you read the New Testament, people often say, well, when you read the New Testament, it sounds like uh, Jesus and the disciples expected the end very quickly um, to happen. And, then, and obviously we're here 2,000 years later. It hasn't happened yet. But there's a tension in Jesus saying here and throughout the New Testament, which is on the one hand, Jesus says very carefully, you need to be ready for the end. It could happen. So there's an imminence. There's a be ready, stay alert. That's our passage for this morning. But at the same time, there are multiple times when the New Testament says, but it's going to feel delayed. So be ready and don't be dismayed when it delays. And that's some of what Jesus is speaking to in verse 9 when he says, don't be dismayed when the end doesn't come right away because it's not going to come right away when Jerusalem is destroyed. So all of that is the context for what Jesus, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, when all of these things happen, when the destruction of Jerusalem happens, when you think about my, my second coming, Stay awake. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. And he goes through a number of warnings. The first being, and now we're ready to, to, to go into what Jesus means by this. Watch yourself. Do not let your heart be weighed down by dissipation. And if you're like you're, me, you're like, dissipation, I don't know what that means. And this is one of those examples when the Bible, we just, I think... A lot of English translations just have trouble saying what the Bible actually says because we want to we make it nice and neat. Which The word for dissipation there is hangover. Do not live like a hangover, Jesus says. So you think, okay, what is a hangover? Well, a hangover is after a night of drinking, you wake up the next morning and you're, you're not feeling great. Um, you're a little sleepy, you're tired, you're irritable, those sorts of things. You need, uh, at least the movies show this, what you need is someone to dump cold ice water onto your face to wake you up because you're... You're not thinking clearly. You're not doing great. And listen, I actually think I don't, have to, I don't have to illustrate this too much, either because there are people in here, I'm sure, who've experienced that at some point, or because, which is okay to name, all right, or because, like, that is what everyone is living in right now. Like, we're all, like, it is hangover life right now in our culture. Right? Who, like, who has just great clarity of thought right now? Like, how many of us right now, it's like, dude, I've never, I'm thinking clearly about the world. I, things are, are just very obvious to me. I've never, th and listen, if you're looking around at the people around you in your life and thinking, man, they just, they're not thinking very clearly. Listen, just for the record, like, they're thinking the same thing about you. Okay? We are living in hangover times. And what Jesus is saying, when you live in, in a disruptive experience of life, or as you wait for the end... You're likely to not think very clearly. You're likely to get weighed down by this world, to just want to stay in your bed, to give up, to, to need something to awaken you from your stupor. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be weighed down like a hangover. Don't, you're, not, you're not going to think clearly. You need, to, you need to know that. You need to be aware of that. You need to be on guard for that. So that's the first warning. Don't let your hearts be weighed down by dissipation. The second warning then related to that is do not let your hearts be weighed down with drunkenness. And so a, a, another response when it feels like the world is ending or life is crazy is a an unbridled pursuit of pleasure, which can come in a number of forms. It can come through drink. It can come 
uh, through entertainment, through distraction. But Jesus says, when the end comes, it's, listen, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Jesus says, don't do that. And this is important to push into, because the Bible has, it, it, there's another tension here, which is that the Bible is not anti-pleasure. It is not anti-pleasure. And so uh, a lot of Christians can come across that way, that anything that gives us pleasure is, is bad, and that's not the way the Bible speaks. And as usual, C.S. Lewis is really clarifying on this point. And in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, which is Lewis writing fictitiously as a demon trying to entice a man to not become a Christian, uh, speaks to this. So again, it's, it's a little weird to, to use these quotes because when Lewis writes fictitiously as a demon, he's writing with God as the enemy, right? And what's wrong is right and what's right is, is wrong. So, but I, I think this is clear enough. It'll make sense. Here's what Lewis writes, again, fictitiously as a demon, trying to entice a man away from Christianity. So this is a demon speaking to another demon. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All our research so far, all we, all we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. This is pretty brilliant. What he's saying is, one, the evil one cannot make pleasurable experiences, things, whatever. All the evil one can do for us is to, to get us to take pleasure and use it in a way that God uh, would never intend. So, and if your Southern Baptist breaks yourself, uh, Psalm 104 says, God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. But here Jesus says, and the Bible's clear in other places, drunkenness is a line where we cross that moves us away from the... Uh, the design of God and pleasure, and into something that is sinful. And so pleasure itself is never wrong, uh, but it can become something that is pursued in a way that leads us away from the vision of God. So what that means for us in this moment, as we prepare for the end, as we live and certainly live in our own tumultuous times, pleasure can easily become a, way, a means by which we fall asleep to the ways and visions of God. So that's worth asking ourselves, when it comes to our own experience of life right now, are we using pleasure as a distraction away from what God wants us in our own lives? Whether that's drink, whether that's um, food, whether that's uh, sex, whether that is the, our streaming cues, whether that's whatever distraction we create that just gives us that dopamine hit, right, the brain hit of pleasure so that we can escape the reality of the world in which we live. Jesus says, you're going to, listen, when the, when the end, before the end comes, you're going to be, you're going to be tempted to do that. Don't do that. Don't live the unbridled pursuits of pleasure. So don't let your hearts be weighed down by dissipation, by drunkenness. And then third, do not let your hearts be weighed down by the cares of this life. Listen, there, there's a lot of things we have to do just to stay alive. So the cares of this life is just like, just the normal day-to-day -day things that just to keep your life going. So this week, for me, there's just a lot of cares. Uh, our pipes in our garage to our washer froze. They didn't burst, they just froze. I was like, I didn't think they burst. And finally they started working again. 
um, yesterday when things warmed up. It's like I had to think about that. Do I call a plumber yet? Do I not? Do I put a space heater in my garage where everything's wet? Do I not? Right? Do I start a fire? Do I not? It's like a lot of things to think about. Then secondly, our garbage disposal started leaking this week. And it's like, do I fix that? Do I, do I call someone in? Do I try to fix it? It's like, what do I do? Uh, and then thirdly, I don't know if you know this, it was like, it, it became Canada in our city this week. It was cold. It was minus 10. It snowed. And I don't live in Canada for a reason. This is America. Act like it, right? That, that's how I felt this week. I got to shovel snow. I got to figure out how to break down ice. It's like the cares of this life were enormous this Week. And what Jesus is saying is just the thought of, like the things that, that you and I do just to, to keep life rhythm going can crowd out the presence of God in our own lives. And I just want to say there's probably never going to be a time in your life that will be better than right now as we come, potentially come out of a, a pandemic season to ask myself, to ask yourself, what should be on my calendar and what should not? What actually leads me to living the life God wants for me and what is just a distraction that's, listen, it's a good, they're good things, right? Having a washer and dryer is a good thing. Having a full calendar with activities or with practices or with hobbies, those are good things. But ultimately, those things, the cares of this life crowd out our vision for God. And what we should start with is what, is, what does a life with God look like? Build my calendar there, and then whatever else can fit in, fits in. Whatever else can't, doesn't. What would a life with God look like? If there, there will never be a better time right now than to ask yourself that question. And the fourth warning Jesus gives, right? So don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, with the cares of this life. And then fourthly, do not fall into a trap. And here he, he uses an interesting metaphor where normally this word trap, which is the word snare, is used of the, of the devil. The devil laying out a trap for us and us catching it, uh, being caught in it. But here, Jesus actually reverses the, the image, the metaphor. And it's actually the day of his return that now becomes the trap. And the, the, the idea being that you and I, just, we walk about life in a way so unaware of his presence, so unaware of his leading, that one day we just step and he, he returns and we're trapped. We've been living so, so out of sync or so out of line with his own vision that we, we, don't, see him, we don't see his return. We're not ready for it. We're trapped in it. And what I want to I build on that image actually by now going to the things that Jesus says we are actually to do positively. All right, so we've sort of given you, okay, listen, the ways we're likely to fail and fall asleep and not watch ourselves as we wait for his return is living life like a hangover, not thinking clearly, pursuing pleasure, uh, <clears throat> um, the cares of this life, and then finally the trap. But now Jesus also in this passage gives some positive things we are to do. What we're to put in our calendar, put on our rhythms in order to be people who stay awake, ready for his return. And the first thing that he says to that, not surprisingly, is we are to pray for strength. Right? So after he gives the warnings, he says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That's a really helpful, again, as I said, Luke 20 and 21 is about two events, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which has already happened, and his second return. And Jesus is getting, he's, he's saying to pray through both of those, those things, right? So pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. I think that's in reference to the fall of Jerusalem. And to stand before the Son of Man. That's referring, I think, to his second coming. So you and I are to pray for the strength to get through the life events you and I have that are likely to make us want to not have the strength to give up. And we're to pray 
thinking about the return of Christ, to be ready to stand before him. And I, listen, I don't think there's any more sobering thoughts, right? So, so again, anytime you watch a movie and someone's got to get sobered up, they, you get, they get a bucket of cold water dumped on them. Like praying for the strength to stand before the Son of Man, that is a cold water prayer. That will wake you up if you pray that prayer. To imagine yourself standing before the Son of God, owning every, every word you've spoken, every thought you've had, every action towards your neighbor you've taken or not taken. Imagine owning your entire life standing before the Son of Man. That's a sobering prayer. And Barbara Brown Taylor, I think, captures this idea well when she writes, In the presence of his integrity, our own pretense is exposed. In the presence of his constancy, our cowardice is brought to light. In the presence of his fierce love for God and for us, our own hardness of heart is revealed. Take him out of the room and all these things become relative. I'm not much worse than you are, nor you than I. But leave him in the room. And there is no room to hide. He is the light of the world. In his presence, people either fall down to worship or do everything they can to extinguish his light. Which, of course, is, is what's going to happen to Jesus. He's in the temple. He's claiming himself as the true temple. And people have a choice. Either they can fall down to worship him, or they can try to, to snuff out his light, which is what they'll do. They'll put him on a cross. And for you and I, one of the ways we stay alert for the time is not just to pray, okay, God, give me the strength, um, you know, help me get through this time, but actually to pray, okay, Lord Jesus, in light of who you are, one day I'm going to stand before you and own all of it, my whole life. Help me have the strength for that day. That, that is a sobering prayer. Because, as Barbara Brand Taylor points out, we tend to, when we think about our, our own lives, we tend to compare ourselves to other people. Right? And it's like we never compare ourselves to Mother Teresa. It's like that's not, it's like we, it's the who's, who's worse than me. I mean, compare myself, oh, look at that guy. Right? It's, that's what we do. And Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Pray in comparison to me. And when you do that, it's a sobering prayer that wakes you from your hangover to life and sobers us up. So pray for strength. And the, the flip side, the, you know, the, the lighter-hearted side of that is Jesus is saying, hey, listen, life is going to be hard at times. I want you to pray to me. Ask me for the strength to get through those moments. So as you and I, however many months left we have of, of pandemic living, whatever that looks like, just praying for the strength to come through it, a faithful disciple of his, more in love with who God is, more in love with God himself, more, servi more service-oriented, love of neighbor, right? Love of God, love of neighbor. How can you grow in that time? Pray for the strength just to get through this season to more faithfully be his disciples. So stay faithful in prayer. Pray for strength. Secondly, we need to keep watch in community. So when Jesus says, again, to his disciples and those listening around, watch yourselves. That's not an, it's not an individual command. The disciples are to do this. In, this is plural. Watch yourselves. This is a work that happens within community. I just, what I want to do, I want to actually just kind of take a moment. And don't, don't shout these things out loud, to be, to be clear. If you're taking notes, you can write, maybe write them down. If you're watching online, you can write it down online or write it, write it down in your notes. If you're, if you're here just listening in person, put it in your mind. But just think about this question. What are the traps 
catching most Christians unaware right now. Right? If Jesus is saying, hey, my day is going to come like, a, you know, and, and people are going to be caught in a trap. What are those traps right now that are catching Christians? What are the traps catching most Christians unaware right now? If you answer that question with one thing, what would it be? My guess is if, if we actually took time, and again, you may have written something down you don't want named publicly, but if we went down, the answers in this room would be really fascinating. And I, there's two things I want to point out about that. First is that I'm betting someone else would name something you wouldn't think of. And by being in community and hearing someone else name something, it's like, oh, that, I didn't think about that. There's something valuable about, about keeping watch in community. The second thing is, Whatever you wrote down is probably not the thing that's going to trap you. Because what makes traps so good is you don't see them. That's why you get caught. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a snare. A snare is not something that's out in the, out in the open that you're going to notice. Most likely, you need someone else to name the snare most likely to trap you. And here's the problem. Because what we're doing today in our own cultural moment, and this has always been true, but I think it's being amplified in unique ways in our own cultural moment, is that we're no longer seeking community. We're seeking tribes. We're seeking to be surrounded by people who will affirm what we think, what we say, what we do, and who will not challenge us. And listen, if you want an example of this, there's a myriad of Christian leaders who have fallen in the last several years, few months, who were surrounded by people who would not tell them the truth. And I want to name one because he has, come, he has come to Christ community before, but in the last week we've learned incredibly depressing and shocking details about Robbie Zacharias and the life he was leading. And listen, there were, there were warning signs all around. If people were willing to look, decisions he was made, things he was hiding from other people, but ultimately no one was willing to ask hard questions and the ones who were willing to ask hard questions were treated very, very poorly by that organization. Because we, we, we want to surround ourselves to protect ourselves so that we can walk into the traps. I had a friend who once told me, everybody wants accountability until it's time to be accountable. And that friend, when someone wanted to hold him accountable, escaped out of accountability. He, felt, he saw the trap. And then when a friend of his said, hey, I think you're walking into sin, he cut that friend out of his, out of his life. I'm not the friend, to be clear, but he cut that person who he respected at one point out of his life because that person named a sin issue within his heart, and he didn't want to hear it. So are you seeking tribe, a tribe, or a community of people who will look you in the face and tell you the truth? Listen, that's why our, our, our vision as a church for this year, it's Ephesians 4, right? We don't take joy in like, hey man, you're going to get caught in a trap. You're terrible. It's like, no, no, no. Ephesians 4, the vision of Christian community is we approach one another with all gentleness and humility, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Right? That's our spirit as Christians. It's, we don't take joy in, in pointing out where other people fall because we need them to name our traps. The least likely person in this room to know what will trap me is me. Which is why the vision of Christian community is watch yourselves. Keep watch for one another. 
stay alert in a community. And then finally, thirdly and finally, and this is connected to, to that, stay alert to our sinful nature. In the Bible, sin is not, not necessarily just actions we do. It's, it's who we are. Um, and, and that's a lot of why we need people around us to tell us the truth. Because it's not just that I'm, like to bre- I'm likely to break some rules. It's that I'm likely to be a type of person who will want to break those rules and do everything I can in order to break them. One of the earliest uh, New Testament writings, uh, 1 John, written by the Apostle John, uh, one, of the, one, of the thing, one of the reasons he wrote to this church community that he was writing to, that he clearly was a pastor of, was really close to, was there a, was a group within that community that was beginning to say, once you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. You're not a sinner any longer. Once you follow Jesus, you have it together now. And so John writes in 1 John 1, 1.8 to speak against those people. He says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. Right? We tra- we're trapped. We're snared. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Um, now, I don't know of, of any Christians, at least in the broader North American context, that like, com- like honestly argue we don't sin anymore after we become Christians. Everyone theologically gets that right. However, you can, you can say, I believe I'm a sinner, and have no actions in your life that actually would suggest that you actually believe that. Right? Where you pass judgment on other people with condescension and pride. Where when other people call attention to your own brokenness and sin, your response is not to humbly listen, but to run away. Where you see the faults and are well acquainted with the faults of other people, but before the Lord, when it comes time to pray... Most merciful Father, we confess we have sinned with our thought, words, and deeds. I don't, I mean, maybe I did this week, but I couldn't name any. We're not well acquainted with our own sin, but we are with the sins of others. And I think ultimately for the Christian, we live a life of repentance. A life, not of like depressingly say, oh, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm so flawed, I'm, I'm so, but this awareness that I am not the person I am to be yet. And that awareness leads to a particular type of watchfulness with Jesus as we await his return, recognizing I'm likely to live not thinking very well. I'm likely to to pursue pleasure instead of pursuing the Son of God, likely to let the cares of this life shut out the presence of God. I'm likely to do those things because that is the type of person I am. And we need a proper vision of our own sin to have a proper vision of the salvation we need before Jesus. And I love the way Fleming Rutledge puts this when she writes, how do we measure the size of a fire? By the number of firefighters and engines sent to fight against it. How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition? By the amount of risk the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures. How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus who became like a crom- common crim- criminal in our place for, common cr- for our sake and in our place. Was a, a few weeks ago, actually, there was, a, there was a fire truck and an ambulance out in front of uh, our building. And there were actually, there were a few other people here uh, in our building at the time. And my first thought was, oh no, like what is, did someone get called for here? Uh, and then when they walked over to Planet Fitness, I felt a bit of, a bit of relief. Um, but imagine instead... That's you, that's me sitting there, and the ambulance shows up, the fire truck shows up, and they come into your building, 
and I said, come up to you. And they say, you're, you're dying? Get on the stretcher right now. We're taking you to the hospital. Because whatever that is, like times a million, the Son of God enters into this world, walks up to us and says, you're dying. The only treatment is my, my own self-sacrificial death on a cross for your, for, on your behalf. It's the only thing that can save you. What would that say about the nature of your condition? It's not great, right? That is the deep flaw in which you and I live. And if we don't live with an awareness of that, we are likely to fall asleep, to not stay awake, to not stay alert, waiting for his return, recognizing it's not just I might do a few bad things you know, through life, but that I have a condition that requires the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God himself. So stay alert to your sinful nature. But that, that's not where I want to end. Because ultimately, like, that's, you know, those are all negative things, right? Like, you're a bad sinner. Keep that in mind, um, right? It's, it's uh, <clears throat> pray for strength because, you, you know, there's so many different ways you can fall. You need other people around. And all those things are true, and I mean them. But where this story ends, where this narrative ends with Jesus is where I want us to end this morning. So Jesus says all these hard things. He makes claims on his authority. And here's the last two verses of this section before we move now into the crucifixion narrative, which is what we'll start next week. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. There's this sense of people just wanted to be around Jesus to hear him speak, to hear him teach, just to be present with him. And so as we think about our own lives, like staying awake, staying alert for the presence of God, may we watch ourselves. Not because there's, there's danger lurking around every corner, not because there's so many ways that in which you can get it wrong. All of those things are true. We've, we've talked about that. But more than anything, because... Jesus is the person for whom you should want to be awake for. His kindness, his mercy, his grace, his salvation, his open arms. Early in the morning, people daily went to be near Jesus. That should be our heart. We just want to be near him. So may we watch ourselves, not because there is danger lurking around every corner, but because who else? is worth being awake for. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we think about our own condition in this moment, both in light of, of what has been a long delay to the return of Christ, but also a unique last 12 months in the times in which you have given us life, Father, help us to stay awake to keep watch over ourselves. And I trust, God, your spirit has just put something on our heart um, to think through and meditate, and I pray your spirit would meet us in that place, not to feel self-condemned, but actually to feel free, that you've named something with us, that now by your spirit and by this community, you want to walk us forward into new life. Walk us forward into your presence to live before you. God, do the work on our hearts now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.